Acts chapter 13. Ah, I forgot to update the reference there. So we're not going to read that one that's there. (laughs) It's going to be, let's see, chapter 13, verse 44 through 52. Acts 13, 44 through 52. And I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. This reading is on page 922 of your pew Bible. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. There are many different ways that Scripture teaches us what is true doctrine, what what it is that we are to believe concerning God. Uh, Sometimes the Scripture takes a lot of different truths and kind of lays them before us and says, you know what this means. You know what all these together mean. Other times, Scripture just comes out in a way that we can't can't ignore, just says it uh, right there and clear. And then there's other times, like the doctrine that we see in our text today, where Scripture uh, slips the doctrine into a text, and it does it in such a way that it just feels... Like it was the most natural thing in the world to say. That's how we see the doctrine of election brought into our passage today. And I'm I'm talking specifically about verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is a doctrine that I try, I I love (laughs) I hope that we all come to love because I do believe it's taught in the scriptures. It's also a doctrine that we ought to handle with great care. It's something that uh, I don't want to stand up in the pulpit and, and pound into you every single week unless the scripture itself is laying it before us in its own careful way. And that's exactly what we see done today, that the scripture commends this to us and shows us unmistakably that God rescues sinners by his free, sovereign, and unconditional love. His electing love. 
That's what we see in our passage. And if you're, if you're still not convinced, I invite you to, to lean into the text, to look at this with me, and to see how God himself brings this doctrine to us in such a way that he just slips it into the text and, and makes it explain everything that's happening here. I want us to first look at what's going on in the scene itself. What's happening in the scene of salvation? And then I want us to pivot and see, well, what's going on behind the scene? Behind the scene, behind the curtain, as Luke takes us there in verse 48. And then I want us to ask this important question. Why does this matter for us today? Why are we, why are we talking about this? Why does God show this to us? Well, first, I want you to see what is looming large um, on the scene of the text. What's going on in this scene? Well, two very different responses are happening to the gospel message that Paul has just preached. And you can almost imagine if you were to, uh, maybe some of you have walked into a sports stadium before and you've heard just a complete um, uproar, you know, noise and, and clamor. And you'll hear some people are going, yes, woo! And then there's other people that are going, boo, no! And you kind of have to you know, replay and say, say to someone, what just happened to get back and say, why are people so divided over this, right? You know, what, what just happened in the stadium? Well, Something very similar is going on here where there are two very different reactions. And I just brought you right into the text, but we have to go back to last week and say, let's press replay. What did Paul just say that is causing such different divisive reactions? And the first thing is this, that uh, Paul, in fact, I'm going to take you straight to verse 38. And there you'll see uh, the recap. Um, in, in a nutshell, verse 38, the main point of the sermon is this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Boom. That's the main point of the sermon. That's the point to underline. Because what Paul is saying is that in Jesus Christ, who is the, 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 the big focus of history, the big focus of Jewish history, the big focus of human history, in Jesus Christ, freedom from the punishment and power of sins has come to you. And all you have to do is trust in Christ. Everyone who believes is free from guilt and the power of sin. Paul used that big weighty word, justified. That's, if we were to, uh, to, to see that word free, some of your Bibles translate it free, other Bibles translate it justified. So God has justified you, declared you righteous in Jesus Christ if you trust in him. That's, that's big news. That's news that is worthy of a response. And so we'd see two very different responses. One response is the response of the Jews. Um, and not, every, not each and every Jew, right? Some Jews like what they just heard a lot. But the majority of the Jews, um, led by the Jewish leadership, they respond with what? Boo, boo. They respond with jealousy. Now, this is not the kind of message that the Jewish leaders at this time would want to hear. Paul's message is not what they would invite to have spoken in their synagogues. Why? Well, first, because if this gospel is true then all of their endless attempts to, to keep God's law, it actually contributes nothing to their righteous standing before the Lord. Right? 
If this gospel that, that Paul pro- proclaims is true, then their law keeping is, does nothing to prop them up before God and to make them proud. Because Paul just torn that down and said, you know, the law can't do that for you. The Ten Commandments can, can, can condemn you. They can show you uh, God's perfect standard. They can show you how you failed. But the, the Ten Commandments can't, can't, get, can't motivate you uh, to, uh, out, of, out of your heart for love for God. The Ten Commandments can't give you life where there's death. The Ten Commandments can't give you resurrection life. But Christ can. And then the Ten Commandments take on a whole new different meaning. So they don't like that. They don't like being told um, that the law isn't, doesn't function how they, how they want it to function. They also don't like this other thing. Everyone who believes is free. Why wouldn't they like that? Because if this gospel is true, then there's nothing keeping Gentiles from joining their church. There's nothing that keeps their little um, church as an exclusive club. Right? And in fact, it's blown wide open. And and, and Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, um, representing Jesus, that the doors are wide open. And even the vilest sinner, even the one who has, has shamed God the most in this life, can go straight to the cross and, and, and through the cross, through the empty tomb, into his church. And the Jews say, well, wait a minute. You've just changed the rules of interest to our club. We don't like this. You've, it's not exclusive anymore. It's not something we can take pride in anymore. We can't point and, and, and talk about the outsiders because, because now we're on the same standing as them. They want their church to be a self-righteous, exclusive club, and Jesus threatens that. And that's why they're jealous. They're jealous that Paul is pulling away control of their club through, uh, by taking away their, their works, the, the, the good works and what they think that represents in their standing before God, and pulling away their privileged status as Jews and saying, the Gentiles are coming in. But look at what Paul says in verse 46 to this jealousy. He says, if you reject Jesus, you reject eternal life. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And and Paul there isn't isn't using that in in, in some way that, uh, that is presenting the Jews as humble. He's saying, it's like you're refusing a life raft that's that's right there while you're drowning. Why? Because you don't like the shape of it. Because it's too, it's too humiliating to be lifted into that life raft. It's too humiliating to be resuscitated when you've drowned. And so they've left themselves under a self-death sentence. Because what is, what is Christ saying? He's saying, if you don't embrace Jesus in the gospel, then you've rejected eternal life. The only way to eternal life. Do you believe that? If you reject Jesus, you reject eternal life. You leave yourselves under under nothing less than a a sentence of self-condemnation. Yeah, Jesus, uh, other people can have him, but he's not my style. Not my style. I'd I'd prefer to try to to live a good life before God and, 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 and to hope that when I get into heaven, God says, good job, good work. That won't save you. That won't save you. Only Christ can save you from your sins.
And so the Jews, are their response is jealousy. They're saying, boo, boo, get out of town. But there's this other response. And, and you see Paul pivots to the Gentiles and he says, you know, Scripture said all along, all along that the Jews are supposed to take salvation to the Gentiles, supposed to be a, a path lighting the way to the Gentiles. But if you're not going to do it, if you're going to reject this only way for them to be included, then I'm going to do it. Gentiles, the gospel's for you. Light to the nations. Here's the path. And, and what do the, the Gentiles say? Yes, finally, this is awesome. We love this. We love this. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We'll take it. If they're going to reject it, we'll have it. Please don't turn us out. This is going to be Paul's pattern. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, he starts off, he says, I'm going to go into the synagogues because the promise came first through the Jews. It came um, uh, through Jesus, who was himself biologically a Jew. It comes with the promise that were given to the Jews for centuries, but it's not just for the Jews. So then after I proclaim in the synagogue and give them a chance to be a light to the nations, if they refuse the gospel, if they leave themselves under a self-death sentence, then I'm going to turn to the Gentiles and I'm going to be a Jew who's a light to Jesus. And that's what he does to the rest of the book of Acts. And so the Gentiles, their response is, yes, please. So do you see these two contrasting responses? Rejection and rejoicing. Jealousy and joy. You know, I wonder, what's your response to the gospel this morning? Is your response something like, well, that's, that's interesting, but that would mean I would have to admit that I'm a sinner before God. That would mean that I have to humble myself before him. That would mean that I have to humble myself so much that, that I'm willing to repent and change my ways and let go of my pride. And the answer is yes, that's exactly what it means. That's exactly what the Lord is calling you to do this morning, to repent of your sin and to rejoice in Jesus. So that's the scene. Two very different responses. Now here's the question. Why are people responding in such different ways to Jesus? And Luke does something that's very unique. Notice what he does in verse 48. He pulls back the curtain and he gives us a theological analysis of what's happening here. What you can't see on the surface, but what's going on behind the scenes. Luke says, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. And what does he say? And as many as were intelligent believed. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that as many were intelligent believed. Does he say, and as many as were spiritually superior believed? No. Does he say as many as were good people believed? Yeah, that's it, right? The, the people who are really good, the people who, who, who in their hearts uh, were, were, were doing really good works, they, they believe. No, it doesn't say that. And as many as were emotionally aware believed. No, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say any of that. It says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I don't want you to miss the order there. Here's the order, okay? It's not people are appointed because they believe, right? It's not that. And, and, and believe it or not, I, I was reading commentaries this week that tried to say that, something like that. They were saying, well, they're appointed because they appointed themselves. That doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't. I, uh, people aren't appointed because they, they believe. People believe because they're appointed, Belief is the result 
of their being appointed. By whom? By God. God's divine appointment. God's sovereign choice. That's what's making the difference between those who reject and those who rejoice, those who are jealous and those who are filled with joy. You know, I wonder if any of you have an appointment this week. Anyone have an appointment, like a dentist appointment or something like that? You know, you know it's at 9.10 on Tuesday morning. No? I mean, a dentist, what? maybe not the best. Oh, you do? Okay, good. Maybe it's not the best example because uh, most of us dread dentist appointments, right? But what I want you to see here is that that's the kind of word that's being used, that God who's the main actor in this text, just as he was the main actor throughout the entire sermon. He's, he's active, he's doing, and one of the things he's doing is he is scheduling appointments where he brings people to life and gives them the very thing that they need. He gives them eternal life. That's how an appointment works, isn't it? It's scheduled, it's prepared ahead of time. And there's, it's as if God right here through the Apostle Paul is walking um, onto the streets of Antioch and saying, you didn't know it, but you had an appointment with me today. And your appointment is to believe. Your appointment is to embrace the gospel. Your appointment is to see Jesus and to come to life in him. This isn't the only time that Paul does this. And that's one of the things I think is important for me to show you, right? The big doctrines of the Bible, the doctrines that, that we, we believe and we wrestle over, they don't just pop up in, in one little passage. That's how you get to heresy. If, if, you, if, you, if you think that you, you build a doctrine off of one little passage. The big doctrines of the Bible are said in a bunch of different ways, in a bunch of different places. So it's just, it clearly commends itself to you um, uh, in God's word. Let me point you then to Acts 16, 14. And there we see in Acts 16, 14, that there's a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The Lord opening her heart to embrace uh, more of the revelation that he's giving through Jesus Christ, opening her heart to believe the gospel. But that's not all. Second Thessalonians 2.13. Second Thessalonians 2.13. But, but we ought always to give thanks to the God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the, first fruit, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Another passage, John 15, 16, where Jesus simply says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. Over and over again, a bunch of different ways. We, we, let's go one more place. Why not? Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one.
Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, over and over again, bunch of different ways. What is scripture saying? That the gospel isn't about us coming to our senses and, and seeing uh, and, and, and becoming fit uh, for God to want us. No, the gospel is about God seeking us out, God choosing us, God pursuing us, God scheduling our salvation. That's what's happening here in verse 48. I don't, I don't know any other way to responsibly handle it. Look at why this matters for us. You're saying, okay, pastor, what does that do for me sitting in the pew here? Well, the first thing it does, first reason it matters is it instills incredible humility. Humility. What does humility mean? Humility means that you posture yourself before the Lord and say, if it were not for you, there would be nothing good in me. Apart from God's intervening, life-giving, get-the-job-done grace, I would still be under, what? A self-death sentence that I myself was responsible for. Because the scripture certainly teaches human responsibility. I chose to reject Christ. I chose death instead of life. Apart from God's intervening, life-giving, get-the-job-done grace, that's where I would be. Now, do you believe that? That it wasn't something special about you that saved you? Or are you still thinking, well, you know, the, the thing that makes me different than that unbeliever over there is that I've really thought this through. Or, you know, I, um, I don't know. I've read more Bible than them. I've come to my senses more than them. I'm just a, I'm a softer person in my heart than them. They're so stubborn. No, it's none of that. Do you understand that you of yourselves, what do the scriptures say? That you are dead in sin and in your trespasses. That's, that's the picture the scripture gives us. That you don't jump up and, 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 and do anything before God breathes the breath of life into you and says, come to Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. You see, the doctrine of election is the great antidote, the great fix to the exclusive club of human pride that we saw with the Jewish people uh, in this passage, with the Jewish leaders. Right? What's the great problem of, of human exclusive pride? of exclusive human pride. It's this, it's saying, I can be part of God's people because there's this special thing that makes me different than them because I've kept the law better than them because I've done this better than them. But the doctrine of election comes and says, no, none of that is true. Left to yourself, you'd be far from God and dead to him. Humility. So this, this passage, this, this sermon ought to make you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for appointing a day in which I would believe in the gospel. It also gives us great hope. Humility and then hope. 
hope for evangelism. Hope for the salvation of sinners. You see, the great missionaries of the 19th century were motivated for missions. Why? What motivated them? Well, if you actually read their writings, if you read the writings of John Patton, who went to the New Hebrides, if you read the writings of Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma, if you read the writings of Hudson Taylor and others, what you see is they actually quote passages like Acts 13, verse 48, and say, I'm going to go and I'm going to risk my life and I'm going to proclaim the gospel because God has appointments that he intends to keep. And if I proclaim the gospel, then God's going to keep those appointments. He's going to bring people to eternal life. He's going to save them. He's going to intervene in the darkness. You see, it's, it's that kind of confidence in a God who can actually do this and who has appointments that he intends to keep that, that motivates missions, that motivates prayer, that motivates preaching. Because if I'm just sharing the gospel with people who are dead in their trespasses and sins and and that's it and I'm just, well, it's all on them, then guess what? Nothing is gonna happen. Nothing's gonna get done. God has appointments he intends to keep. Humility, hope. Do you see it? Really, all of this, you say, What does this mean for me? When when it all comes down to it, yes, I see the humility, I see the hope, but really what it takes you is back to verse 39. Verse 39 of the Paul sermon, that the gospel is for everyone who believes. Do you know how God's election is made crystal clear in your life? When you believe the gospel, don't sit around wondering about these things in some intellectual, um, uh, you'll sit at the desk manner. Believe the gospel. That's the big takeaway. What God has given to you is to believe, to embrace Christ, to say, I turn from my sins, I turn to the Savior, give me Jesus. Then God's calling and election will be made sure. Then there will be no doubt that he has scheduled an appointment and that appointment is with salvation. And you are so glad that God intervened in the darkness of your own life. Believe in him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, even difficult doctrines, doctrines that your own saints, like the Apostle Paul, wrestle over and and, and have difficulty with, um, even these things are worth preaching, very much worth preaching. Because they are in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would be humble to receive them, uh, that we would be challenged by your word. And Lord, like the Apostle Paul, though we wrestle with doctrines like this, Help us to see the glory in them and help us to see the great takeaway, humility, hope for missions and trust in in your Savior. Lord, we pray that none of this would be an up in the sky theological conversation, but would really be about our day to day lives and the encouragement that we have by your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.